from Neon Hum Media. This is Dirt Cheap. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we're reading Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. We are on chapter 14 of this book. This is tough to ask, but do you remember where we are in the book? The last chapter was a real WTP, or what the fill, if you will. <laughs> oh, yes. It truly was a what the fill moment, Jeffrey. Um. All right. So to catch oh. people up, Phil Norris, he's going around talking to all kinds of people, including the father of his dead wife, Edna, uh, the father, Oliver. I mean, from the moment that he, like, tried to wedge into his door <laughs> yeah. to the moment he fled uh, was baffling. Each exchange was more baffling than the next. Yes. So they first kind of start this, like, this cat and mouse dance of a conversation where, mm-hmm. you know, Oliver is kind of giving, like, what seems like a villain spiel. It was yeah. like, ah, logic, you see? And, <laughs> oh, my daughter was so evil. I should have put glass in her baby bottle. It was, like, truly bizarre, <laughs> weird, like, Spanish Inquisition, like, you shouldn't be this creative with torture kind of thing. Especially when talking about your daughter. It's literally talking about his daughter. Yeah. All right, chapter 14. I've seen dawns that were like tonic to the blood, the kind that make you feel there's something more to life than the routine day-to-day living most of us are tied down to, the kind that make you feel there's something new and hopeful and wonderful about to happen, if only you could stay alert enough to catch it. But this dawn was different. It was gray and cold and hopeless, The feeling of rain was in it, and death. Edwin Rolfe is the poet. We think he's like the one with the... uh, The one who's trying to be showy with words, uh, with just varying degrees of failure. I rubbed some of the sleep out of my eyes and stretched some of the cold out of my bones and reached into my pocket for a cigarette. When I took my hand out, there was a piece of paper in it, together with the cigarettes. Immediately, I remembered the tropical jungle, the phony drunk, his hand in my pocket. His whispered, Stanley wants you. There was very little written on the sheet, just an address scrawled in pencil. I studied it while I lit my cigarette. It was in the Los Feliz section. Putting the paper back into my pocket, I started to lace my shoes. Then I headed back to the high wall. Passing the tombstones, I stopped and patted one. Only the dead make perfect hosts. I looked over the wall cautiously. The street was empty. My watch read 8.40. I hurdled the wall easily this time, landed neatly on the sidewalk, and walked up the street. The house was old, as L.A. houses go, but, like the grounds around it, beautifully kept. Holding the slip of paper in my hand, I walked across the flagstone path, that cut through the big lawn and rang the doorbell. Wow, so he did not have to go very, he did not have to go very far. Apparently he was just like in the right, he was in the right neighborhood. The door opened immediately and I almost jumped in surprise. It was Willie who had opened it. 
Willie. <laughs> Willie. Willie. The the Newman to Phil Seinfeld. Hello, Willie. <laughs> he stood there, cool as a Pentagon colonel, smirking at me. What the hell was Willie doing here? At Stanley's address. My first impulse was to grab him by the throat. My hands actually started to go for him, but I remember just in time that I had more important business at the moment. Instead of going for him, I grinned. Willie sniggered back at me impudently. Without a word, he invited me in. I followed him up a long hallway toward a large, ornately carved door. Passing an open doorway, I looked in. Tommy McGowan, the drunk of the tropical jungle, and the dark-haired Mino were grouped around a billiard table. So this is it. We got the we're in, this is the All Star. These are the All Stars. This is the All Star Dream Team. This is the All Star Dream Team. This is Stanley's place. We got Willie. We got Tommy McGowan, the drunk from the tropical jungle. Mino is all is here. I mean, this these are all your faves. Tommy, who was about to make a shot, looked up at me and smiled. Then the other two turned their heads and grinned. Willie tugged impatiently at my sleeve. I followed him up the hall to the carved doorway. Willie opened it for me and then closed it on himself. Stanley was standing behind a big bare desk. So all the roads really do lead to Rome, I thought. Oh my God, like Phil is suddenly <laughs> so pithy and so like receptive and perceptive of people's facial expressions in a way that he wasn't before. It's no, like, maybe did, he, did he just have a really great night of sleep at the cemetery? <laughs> maybe just this is his arc as, a, <laughs> you know, all this this running you know, has really put his relationships with others into perspective. And now he's more open, more giving. Stanley said, welcome, Mr. Norris. I moved closer and noticed for the first time that Stanley was not alone. In a chair to the left of the desk was a little fat man, bald and well-fed, dressed in an unobtrusive gray suit. Man, keep... <laughs> Keep fat saying the and well fed. Fat. It's just well like that fed, chubby. Jolly, it's just chubby. like the chubby hand, the chubby brown hand. I know. That was seemingly attached to no one. He is, yeah, this, the disembodied chubby hand. I was sure I had never seen him before. Stanley said, This is Mr. Thayer, Mr. Norris. Happy to make your acquaintance, Mr. Norris, Thayer said. You don't mind, Stanley said. If Mr. Thayer participates, he's vitally interested in our organization, and this is his house. I wanted to say, get him out, but I didn't. Please sit down, Stanley said. I'll stand. Please yourself, he said. He eased himself into the big swivel chair behind the desk. We stared at each other for a minute, Stanley all the time looking very pleased with himself, and me wondering what it was all about and where Willie came into it. Why did you kill her, Stanley? Why I said that, I'll never know. I hadn't meant to. It had just popped out very suddenly. But it didn't phase the professor. That's an odd question, coming from you. I should have asked you that question. And with better reason, I had nothing to do with her death. You're the one who killed her. Everyone knows that. If the police knew you were here, do they know? I asked quickly. No, Stanley smiled. Why not? I'm a law-abiding citizen, Stanley said. I have nothing to do with police. 
Besides, I have something to say to you. A matter of business. Look, if you didn't kill her, you still know a hell of a lot more than you should. I watched Stanley closely, but his face was blank. If there was anything at all in it, it was annoyance. In my profession, he said pontifically, it is considered a virtue to know more than one should. I have always made it a cardinal point to know more than I should about many things. Such as what? And what's your profession? One question at a time, Stanley said. Do me the courtesy of allowing me to speak. My profession? I'm an economic analyst. You know that. Sure, I know. But that's not what I mean. What about the sideline racket of yours? The veterans? Stanley rose to his feet. His face went purple, and he pounded the desk with a big, bony hand. You will please not use such language here, he shouted. The door opened behind me, and Mino stuck his head in. You called for me, chief, he asked. Stanley swallowed once or twice before he answered. No, he said, and his voice was once again low and composed. Please do not disturb us. The door banged shut. I had to admit to myself that the man had an unmistakable style. The first time I had seen him, at Edna's, there had been too many other things on my mind for me to pay any particular attention to him, and the shadow of the slap behind the glass wall had stereotyped him in my mind, but now all that was far behind. Watching him move, listening to him talk, hearing that deep, perfectly controlled and modulated voice, I was impressed in spite of all I knew about him. He had a manner, a charm, a smoothness, an urbanity in everything that was compelling, that captured and held your attention. <laughs> oh my goodness. Is he, fall- is he falling in love with Stanley the way he did with Edna? It just, yep. sometimes he just like, he really falls for people with traits he wishes he has, but has, but also has no interest in putting the effort towards doing or being. Yeah, he, Phil wants to be part of the upper crust. Like, he wants that for himself. So it makes sense that he would admire that in Stanley. Given another setup, I might even have liked the bastard. I began to understand a little of how he gathered so many different kinds of men and women around him and why they did the things they did for him. How did you and Willie know I had 50 grand? I asked. Did Jerry Stearns tell you? Who? I repeated the name. I've never met the gentleman. I vaguely recall the name. Skip it, I said. I saw in his face that he wasn't lying, and Jerry was the only one who could have told him about the dough. The only one, except Edna. Explain yourself, he said. You explain yourself. (laughs) Sorry, it's just (laughs) so so fucking childish. I hate him so much. This is like... (laughs) He it, finally has a chance to get to like do something here. Everybody's here. Everybody. And he's just he's fucking this up already. Yeah, he is not getting the information that he needs. He is he's relying on his ability to read faces to tell whether or not somebody's lying. Right, and he has never been able to read a face accurately. Right. And and he's also not getting the information that he needs. Um, he's just like, you killed her, right? <laughs> he's like, no. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, explain what's going on. <laughs> you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, Phil. You explain yourself, I said. How'd you know I had that 50 grand? 
Stanley opened his mouth to begin another oration about the practice of his profession, but I cut him off. You knew about it, I shouted. And there were only two people who could have told you. You learned about the 50 grand from Edna. What difference would it make if he did? Like, they I mean, were date. They, I they just, were dating. I assumed that was how he knew it. Yeah, oh, me too. Like Edna is, of course, she, like, Stanley was, like, nearby when she said, I want the money. Right. I, of course he would know. What is this? this is They're so bad at writing a mystery. Calm yourself, Stanley said. That's why I wanted to see you. I wanted to explain some things to you and answer some questions and make a few suggestions. I discovered I was trembling. It wasn't enough to show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, please. At a certain point, it starts to feel like, like, is this a Chris Elliott novel? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I suddenly realized I'm trembling. (laughs) I know. Yeah. He does. Do you have control over your body in any way? I mean, I guess based on last chapter, no, no, definitely not. Noodle man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's trembling. I mean, and what is he trembling about? Like <laughs> Stanley being like, "I want to, I want to explain things. I want to talk to you, answer some of your queries." And he's like, he's like, like "I'm going insane." When your enemy, who's clearly framing you, is like, "Hey, have a chat. I'll answer any questions you have. How can I help you today?" <laughs> he's just like imploding. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> he doesn't know how to do like the idea of solving a problem is like. He's allergic to it. He right. needs to just live in festering problems. <laughs> <sighs> I discovered I was trembling. It wasn't enough to show, though, and in order to get myself completely back under control again, I sat down and let him speak. It's true, he said. I learned about your $50,000 from your late wife. The first time I heard about it was the day you came to Mrs. Norris's party. After you left, she told me you had agreed to a divorce and that the settlement would involve your pay, I mean giving her, $35,000, he continued. Later, I think it was sometime during the afternoon on the day of her death, she told me you had decided to raise the amount to $50,000. I laughed. So I had decided to raise the amount. Stanley just looked at me and continued. After her tragic death, I remembered the money, and I remembered also that it properly belonged to me. What? Calm yourself and listen to me. You have no way of knowing this, but it's true nevertheless. Mrs. Norris was deeply interested in a project of mine, a project that will be of incalculable benefit to millions of our young ex-servicemen and the rest of the country. I know, the racket. Stanley just glowered at me, but didn't stop talking. Before her death, she had made up her mind that she was going to put the money she was to obtain from you into our great organization. A philanthropic idea, I might add. To you, the money meant nothing. It was a corruption, ill-gotten, through gambling and allied activities. Her turning over the money to our organization, which she promised to do, would have been in a way, an act of expiation of your sins. In another sense, it was in the best romantic tradition, taxing the rich to give to the needy, like Robin Hood. I can just see it, I said. Scoff! But one day, even you will be convinced, if only by the magnitude of our numbers. Sure, 
I didn't believe the part about her putting the dough into Stanley's racket. Not, at least, on any philanthropic basis. Probably she had spotted a good thing, and maybe her idea had been to invest in something that was bound to bring in a good, quick, tidy profit. Phil slam. Well, here's the thing. Phil does not know anything about Edna. He clearly doesn't. <laughs> he clearly does not. Does not know, understand her or her motivations and or her not, life. And oh. I'm not hearing anything from the book narration or dialogue that post learning all these things that he's learned that he's even remembered them. No. Like he's not thinking about them. Absolutely he's not. He's like big revelations about Edna's life. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's definitely, it's not clear to me why Edna wouldn't donate to a charitable organization. Like we know that she gave money to her good friend over and over again for many years. You know, granted she like cut her off at a time, but like, she was generous with her friend. We'll be right back. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. I see, I said. So that's why you sent your two little gunmen to Jeremy Street to take the dough away from me. No, merely to convince you of the justice of my claim to it. <laughs> it's like, I sent two of my finest goons to have a conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> two of my finest goons. <laughs> two intellectual acolytes to your home to, uh, <laughs> to yes. teach you. To have a salon about, <laughs> <laughs> about, about the, the money and how it's mine. <laughs> right. And now, I said... I suppose you've figured out a new scheme for getting hold of it. Precisely, Stanley said. Precisely, echoed Thayer. I let go with a long, loud belly laugh. <laughs> I failed to see the joke, Stanley said. I subsided. You're right, I told him. It isn't funny. Well, he said, shall we proceed? Nothing doing, I said. That's final, Mr. Norris? Final. Proceed with what? 
Yeah, what the fuck are they talking about? It's Okay, he was, let me go back a Proceed second. with murdering him? <laughs> What's happening? I suppose you figured out a new scheme for getting hold of it. Yes, precisely, precisely. They say precisely. Then they talk about whether it's a joke or not. And then he's like, Stanley is like, well, should I proceed with that scheme? And Phil is like, no, don't proceed with the scheme. <laughs> and and Stanley's like, is that final? And he's like, yes, that's that's it. This huh? is, I don't know what they've agreed to. All right, keep yeah, going. Yeah, this is very confusing. All right. Thayer got up and began to talk, but Stanley silenced him. <laughs> Listen, Mr. Norris, you're a man of the world. You know you're in a difficult position, a most difficult position. I have no intention, no desire to interfere with the law in any way. I don't want to help them arrest you, nor do I care to turn you in. Big of you, I said. But look at it this way. In your circumstances, the money is useless to you. It would be of inestimable value to me. I don't doubt it, I interrupted. But Stanley kept on talking as if he hadn't heard. To me and my great organization, it would help instill a sense of hope in millions of young men who now have nothing but personal defeat and bitterness in their hearts. You said that before. Not sure he did, but okay. <laughs> My proposal is, briefly, that you turn over only part of it to me. Say, the 35000 that you originally promised to Mrs. Norris. You yourself keep the remainder of it. I marveled at the man's brass. Go choke a duck, I said. Oh my. Go choke a duck. Go, Go choke, choke a, a duck. duck. This is a book for adults. <laughs> that like presumably like, I mean, I don't know what like the code of language is at this point, but like, I love the idea of like, the hardest man of 1945 would tell you to go choke a duck. I don't know what that means. Like at first it was like choke on a duck. No, like go to the park, single strangle out a, a, duck. a duck and strangle. I, Find Scrooge McDuck. Uh, <laughs> strangle him to death. <laughs> Take as many of the coins as you can from the money bin. This is the only way. This is the only way. Yeah. Go choke a duck. Go choke a duck. So don't say that to me. I won't say that to you. We're husband and wife. We love each other very yeah, much. Yeah, there have to be boundaries. There have to be boundaries. Never say to go choke a duck. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's too hard. Yeah, don't go to bed angry. Don't <laughs> say choke a duck. <laughs> you mean no? You're getting brighter every minute. Again, Stanley's face turned crimson, and his hands gripped the edge of the desk with terrific pressure. I saw his knuckles go white under the skin and I knew he was making a tremendous effort to keep himself under control. I had him spotted now, spotted and figured out. I couldn't insult him by anything except a word or an expression that indicated disrespect for him. I let him talk so long because I really wanted to find out what made him tick. Now I knew. He was one of these crazies, a fanatic. Whatever his background had been, straight or crooked, and I knew several parts of it which didn't sound very savory, he left it all behind him. And no matter how crooked his current project, no matter how dangerous to the country, or to the veterans who might be duped by him, or to himself if the law caught up with him, he looked upon himself as a messiah, 
a great man, a chosen leader, like a tin Hitler, or Mussolini, or a Huey Long, or a couple of live imitations of all of them who were still currently operating on the American scene, especially in LA, in Southern California, the traditional home of the crackpot. So, what do we think, Phil Norris? Psychoanalyzing Stanley. This is this is futile. I know that is. I don't think he has a handle on this. No. But uh, I do like uh, that he brought. Like he's like a fucking uh, like a drunk uncle, or he just like oh oh I see okay it's the the home of the crackpots thing again yada yada I know (laughs) you go in here L A is home of the crackpots Uh, spiel just just eat your stuffing please just (laughs) oh my god do we have to talk yeah do we have to talk about Tin Hitler again Tin (laughs) Uncle Phil in a minute he got over his inner fit relaxed again in his chair cleared his throat. (laughs) and ran his tongue over his lips. There's one last possibility, Stanley said at last. A final offer? Put it that way, if you will. Yes, shoot, I said. I propose an equal division of the money. 25,000 for you, 25 for me. You can go to hell, I said getting up. I'm sick of listening to your voice. Stanley got up too and held onto his desk. You will regret this, Mr. Norris, he said. This is like the worst negotiation of all time. Oh, yeah. How? Okay, Stanley is supposed to be like a smart guy, (laughs) according to this book, right? Like, I understand that, like, Phil is bad at negotiating. Of course. We know that. That is pretty established. But, like, Stanley's a smart guy, right? He's supposed to be three steps ahead. He's supposed to be three steps ahead. (laughs) Stanley's like... Give me the money. <laughs> Phil is like, no. And Stanley's like, give me a little less of the money. Phil is like, no, I'm not doing Still that no. either. And Stanley's like, I'm furious with you. <laughs> and Phil is like, I'm furious with you too. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh my God, you This two. is starting to feel a lot like the last chapter. This like circular conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is just going nowhere. <laughs> I leaned across the desk facing him. I've got a proposition of my own, I said. All right, I'm listening. First get Willie here. Both Thayer and Stanley looked at me bewilderedly. The deal depends on it, I said. Stanley looked at Thayer, and the little fat man lifted his eyebrows as if to say, Why not? Stanley hesitated only a moment. Then he shouted, Mino? Mino! Mino stuck his head in through the door. Call the others, Stanley said, and come back yourself. Okay, chief. I wandered around the room. It was a fairly big room, about 30 feet long and 20 feet wide. There were two solid walls, both broken by big oak doors. One was the door I'd been ushered through by Mino. The other was at right angles to it. Stanley's desk was close to the other wall, through whose four windows the late morning sunlight poured in. Behind Stanley, almost the entire wall was one huge series of French doors, all of them closed, opening into a wide green lawn. It was a fine room in a fine house. (laughs) Neither Stanley nor Thayer said a word. Stanley looked at me from time to time, but Thayer was completely absorbed in his fingernails. 
After what seemed like 10 minutes, but I saw by my watch was actually only two, I returned to my chair at the desk opposite Stanley. What's your proposition? Stanley asked suddenly. Wait, I said, you'll know soon enough. I sat back and started to look at my own fingernails. A little song kept running through my head. It had only three words, and they tumbled one after another incessantly, silently, endlessly. There was no melody, only the words. Save your skin. It's more like emo goth poetry from yeah <laughs> from Phil. Okay. Save your skin. Save your skin. Ugh. Save your skin. I heard the door open behind me. Mino's voice said, Here they are, chief, in a husky whisper. I didn't turn around. I didn't want to turn around. The rest of them aren't here, the husky voice continued. I couldn't wait any longer. I turned around and looked. My heart beat fast. He was here all right. Now was the time. Following Mino into the room were Tommy McGowan and the big drunk and behind them was Willie. He strutted about like a little cock of the walk. Something had happened to him. He was no longer the cringing, begging Willie who had shadowed me for months. He held himself as erect as possible for him, and his steps hit the floor firmly, with no hesitation, with assurance. He looked at me with a mixture of pleasure and defiance. Mino and Tommy and the drunk seemed to defer to him, At last, it seemed, he had found his niche in life. Stanley started the introductions, but I interrupted him. I've had the misfortune, I said. Willie rushed up to me, shouting, You talk decent to me! Stanley stopped him with a glance. He said, Willie's right, Norris. Anxiety is no excuse for bad manners. Willie smirked and edged away again. There was a look of triumph on his face. This is the pettiest individual. I think Willie's the only person pettier than Phil. Absolutely. Like, like, yeah, on the on the petometer, like <laughs> Willie's off the charts. The petometer. <laughs> <laughs> the petometer, yeah, for measuring pettiness. You haven't heard of this? <laughs> I want to point out that this is all just to get these people into the room. I'm so mad. <laughs> okay. From okay, let me just say from the time. Okay. First get Willie in here. That's on 158. So it takes a full two pages to get to the point where Phil is about to speak and say what it is he actually wants. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot. In a normal book, they may not have taken that long to do this very simple thing. Now that we're all here, Stanley said, what's your proposition? I shifted in my chair and faced Stanley directly. Here it is, I said. You can have half of my 50000 but you have to give me something in return. Name it. My alibi, I said. A sharp, quick glance passed between Stanley and Thayer. You mean, Thayer said, you want us to cook up an alibi that'll save your neck from the murder rap? No, I told him. I don't want you to cook up anything. I didn't kill my wife. Willie can prove it. On the night she was killed, he followed me from the time I left her at Riley's until about two o'clock. Stanley looked at Willie for confirmation, but Willie didn't move. His eyes had narrowed to small, suspicious slits. It was during that time, I continued, that she was killed. 
Willie knows I couldn't have killed her. He can vouch for the time he followed me. All I need is his statement that I couldn't have reached her house until after two in the morning, and I'll be clear of the rap. I'll pay 25 grand for Willie to get up before the police or before a jury and tell them that. Tell them the truth. Stanley didn't say anything for a few seconds after I finished speaking. No one did. Finally, he turned to Willie and said, What do you think? Willie said, The hell with him! Then, turning to me, he repeated it, much more violently, almost spitting the words, The hell with you! He shouted. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Willie will... <laughs> I mean, it is a lot to ask, I guess, of Willie, who really, really hates Phil and at would want to see him, especially at this point, who would want to see him burn. Like, who want to see? Who would want to see him fry this much? I mean, who would want to save Phil of this group? <laughs> you, like, who? Clearly like, no one. No one. <laughs> right. But it's really... I think it's really funny that Phil's freedom depends on Willie. If he had just treated Willie with a little bit more respect, like Willie might have just vouched for him and that would have been the end of it. Well, I asked Stanley. He regarded me calmly for a few seconds and then said, I agree with Willie. Willie's right. I hadn't expected that. I didn't know what to say next. I looked at Willie. He strutted up and down before the French windows leering at me. No, Stanley said. The proposition isn't good enough. I think we can arrive at a better one. Willie stopped strutting. I think, said Stanley, that 25000 is inadequate. You can do better than that. Willie started to say something, but Stanley shut him up with a gesture of the hand. Much better than that, Stanley said. Exactly twice as good. You can have your alibi for exactly 50000 He couldn't hide the smile of triumph that pulled up the corners of his long, thin-lipped mouth. Willie glared at me. I looked around the room. Tommy McGuin was lighting a cigarette, looking unconcerned. Mino was rubbing the outside of his sling with his good arm, his face sullen as always. The drunk had a sadistic smile on his face. Bear hadn't moved from his chair. Stanley sat waiting and smiling. As for me, I was in the proverbial hot seat, with the pressure on the proverbial spot. I opened my mouth to say okay, but I didn't have a chance to say anything, because Willie beat me to it. No! He shouted suddenly. God damn it, I say no! I ain't gonna alibi for that bastard for a hundred grand! Stanley put up his hand again in an imperious gesture, but it didn't work this time. Willie wouldn't be stopped. God damn it, I said no! He shouted, jumping up and down like a crazy one. He had his chance. I gave him his chance a hundred times, and he turned me down like I was dirt. First he robs me of everything I got. First he blackens my name all over town. Me with a high school education. I gave him a chance to make up for it. I gave him a chance a hundred times. I ask him like a friend. I beg him like a slave. He says no. I gave him his last chance, and he kicks me out of the way like I was a dirty dog. He rubs my nose in the dirt. Let him burn for it. I ain't gonna alibi for him. I ain't. Not me. Wow. Willie goes off. Willie goes off. Willie goes off. 
listen, Willie is in touch with his feelings. He at least <laughs> has been able to know where he stands with others. Yes, absolutely. And he's able to sort of compare that with how he maybe feels about himself and is able to come to a conclusion that <laughs> there's a gap between those <laughs> and is able to like advocate for himself, at least to some degree. He still sucks. But yeah. like. <laughs> but here's the thing. Like, okay, if I'm Willie in this situation, I think, A, I would do it for a part of the money. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, all right, you get 50000 but 10000 goes straight to me, Professor. Right. And also, you have to say you're sorry, <laughs> Phil I mean, Norris. Wouldn't that be a better challenge? You have to apologize and mean it for everything you've done to me, right? Like, that would be... You know, that would be more logical, but, you know, it's the heat of the moment. I don't blame Willie, honestly. I mean, at least, like, Professor Stanley is being described as, like, a guy who's, like, constantly repressing his hatred. Like, right. you know, at least Willie, you know, at least Willie can be up front. Yeah, he's honest. He's mm -hmm. honest. I'll take, I'll take that. Or at least honest about this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Who knows what else he's, what he's, you know, really honest about life. But when it comes to Phil Norris, <laughs> Willie puts his cards on the table, so to speak. right back. And we're back. Phil is outnumbered, and he's trying to negotiate his way into an alibi, a truth-based alibi. Go get him, Phil. <laughs> Stanley and the others in the room watched him the way I did, first with surprise, then with rapidly diminishing amusement. Finally, with exasperation. Talk sense, Tommy said. What does it mean to you? There's nothing. Maybe you'll burn anyway, in spite of your alibi. I'll burn in hell first, Willie shouted. Stanley got up and walked a few steps towards him. All right, Willie, he said in a low voice. That doesn't bother me, but not first. First, you're going to testify that Mr. Norris was where he says he was that night. After that, you can burn in hell or wherever you want to burn. Understand? Willie looked like a beaten dog. He looked from Stanley to Tommy to Mino to the drunk to me. All of us were watching him. Is it agreeable to you? Stanley asked me. I nodded slowly. Willie exploded again. God damn it, I won't do it. Nothing you say will make me. You'll do it, Stanley said quietly. Then, turning to me, he'll do it, Norris. I'll see to it. What is the relationship between Stanley and these guys? These guys are, like, over at Thayer's house. They're all hanging at Thayer's, right? Like, do they properly work for him? Like, are they part of his Veterans United mm. cult? Here's another... Okay, here's my... The first blush assumption was like, kind of like how the, the first time we met him, he was at Edna's party. Yeah. Like, St Professor Stanley 
finds people who seem to be wealthy or at least like appear to be. So it, it's possible that Thayer is just his next mark. Right. And it's like, oh yeah, like, hey Thayer, can I uh, have my goons over for a goon meeting real quick? <laughs> right. You know, a little goon sesh. Yeah, and, and it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I'm already, I've, I'm the most recent person to have fallen for your charms right. and your and your purpose and, uh, and I'm a business owner and so you know that I have money as opposed to Edna who was kind of fronting as if she had money. Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, though not stated explicitly no, in the text. But no, it definitely this is just is what a, I'm reading into it. Yeah, because good. the book has done has given us very little to read in that sense. But like what power do you think Stanley has over Willie? Um, I think it's probably the same kind of extortion that he had on everybody else. Right. How like is there something where are they being blackmailed or right. extortioned in some way? To we have do no these idea. Things? But like it's kind of implied that he has something on these people when he's like, don't worry, I'll make him do it. Well, that's implied. But yeah, like, but it's what like it that mean, doesn't you know? mean anything and that we're not being just, given any context clues in I mean, any direction. I mean, the professor just might think very highly of his oratory skills. His <laughs> skills. I can convince anyone of anything. <laughs> right. I mean, he does seem like the kind of character yes. that believes that. Willie turned on Stanley furiously. There were tears in his eyes. You goddamn dirty skunk! He shouted, after all I'd done for you, what I wouldn't do for my own father, God rest his soul. God damn it, I won't do it. You'll do it, Stanley repeated. When Willie started to rave again, Stanley turned to Tommy McGowan and Mino in the drunk and motioned for them to come closer. Together, the four of them walked slowly to the corner of the room where Willie stomped up and down shouting, God damn it, I won't do it. That bastard Norris. Nobody's gonna force me. The drunk was the one who reached him first. He grabbed him by the lapels of his coat and twisted them together and said, talk sense. But Willie continued to yell and to struggle. Then it happened, so suddenly and so unexpectedly that all of us were caught flat-footed. Willie screamed, God damn it, I won't. Tore himself from the drunk's grasp and hurled himself against the closed French window. He crashed through it amid the splintering glass and ran in a crazy staggering line across the lawn and around the corner of the house. Oh my God. Yup, Willie would he rather- crashed through a window, that's so painful. Willie would rather jump through the window than help Phil Norris. If that isn't, a wake-up call for Phil. Right. I don't know what is. The minute the glass shattered, I leaped to my feet and started to rush after Willie, but I ran into a jarring stiff arm. I heard Thayer say, Hold it. Tommy and Mino and the drunk froze where they were. This is a respectable neighborhood, Thayer said. What would people think? Stanley turned to me and made a great effort to smile urbanely. I saw how hard he was straining for effect, and he almost succeeded. You won't believe me, Mr. Norris, but I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry, just when we had arrived at a legitimate quid pro quo. I looked at him in a half daze. Yeah, I said. But there must be another way, Stanley said. What? I asked. I looked at my watch and saw it was almost noon. I haven't got much time. I'm sure you have, Mr. Norris. 
Stanley said. I saw that Mino and Tommy and the drunk were edging slowly toward me. For a second, I felt panic rising in me. But then, suddenly, I remembered. No, Professor Harley, I said. I haven't. Stanley's mouth fell suddenly open. This was my one chance to duck, and duck fast. I got up from my chair and started moving toward the door. Mino and Tommy and the drunk moved too, directly into my way, blocking me. I looked at Stanley. His face was purple. His jaw muscles kept working, expanding and contracting. He kept clenching and unclenching his hands. Finally, he looked at me and spoke to his lieutenants. Let him go, he said in a half-choked voice. The three figures stepped away, puzzled. I walked towards the door again. I knew I had Stanley stymied. Everything would be lost for him, the whole lucrative racket of Veterans United, if I spilled about the Professor Harley before his associates. They would ditch him quicker than you could say Huey Long. Even a racket organization like Veterans United couldn't afford to be so vulnerable at the top spot, and Stanley knew it. Mm. Yeah, this know. feels like a convenient way to end the scene. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. <laughs> After I, a lot of puttering. I mean, Willie already was like, I've done like more horrible things for you than I would ever do for anybody. Like... The, all these guys have probably done horrible stuff. A so lot like, of these guys are probably, yeah, so like, used I don't, to it. Right, used to it. So I don't think they would be like, I don't think they'd ditch him if they found it like the professor was bad. Don't think, I heard Stanley say, you're getting away with this. I turned my back on them all and headed to the door, opened it, and walked out. I had a funny, constricted feeling in my spine. My whole body was prepared for anything, for a bullet in the back. I half waited for the sound of the gun, for the bullet to strike, but nothing happened. The silence surged back behind me as I walked and walked, further and further away from them. Then I was out of the house, still alive, still in one piece. The bullet hadn't come, and I knew why. There was no sign of Willie anymore. After what had happened, I had as much chance of finding him now in a town like L.A. as I had of tracing a wisp of chimney smoke in a cloudy sky. And that is chapter 14 of Murder in the Glass Room <laughs> by Sorry. Edwin Rolf and Lester Fuller. Uh, Amanda, what do you think? No. <laughs> no on this? I, I this is this book is this was getting the all-stars. These were the all-star this was the all-star team of, I, of like, Stanley's nemesis. Do we, do we think that Phil's all-star dream was supposed to be some kind of foreshadowing or portention? Definitely. It's so bad, <laughs> this writing. <laughs> I kind of wish that Edna's ghost was there too. I want Edna's ghost to be there too. I agree. I feel Phil, like she's got some things to say. Well, Amanda, this book has taken us to many exotic locales around Los Angeles. This is, you know, you would say that Los Angeles is a character in this book. <laughs> I definitely would say that. Yes, 100%. As it does a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> That's right. Well, we've been to uh we've been to the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. We've been to Los Feliz and uh we're going to the farmers market. Great. Remember that's where uh, Phil said he was going to meet Shelley. 
Yeah, and that's where the term, the famous term that's on the farmer's market, meet me at 3rd and Fairfax, comes from. Right, that's right. From this famous novel. (laughs) It's from this famous novel, Murder in the Glass Room. Amanda, uh, just off the top of your head, like, what are some things that might annoy you about the farmer's market? Like, some things that, like, you know, that make the experience less than desirable. In terms of in terms of shopping, I could think of one like the crowds. It yeah, gets very you, crowded. It can get really crowded. Um, if you want to eat, it might be difficult to find a seat. Absolutely. Um, what else? Yeah, crowds would be the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, for Phil, I would imagine his biggest complaint about the farmers market is that it's a place where there's an attempt on his life. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we have different complaints, I think, from okay. Phil. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, yeah. Let's see if everyone at the farmer's market is cool with it. Absolutely. <laughs> Next time on Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs>